0: hey everybody michael gunger here
1: hello emily capshaw here
0: we're so excited to tell you about two new events that we're launching this fall. The first is called Commune.
1: Commune is a two-night intensive that we'll be bringing to a bunch of different cities where anybody from any background, any place in your faith experience or your beliefs, you're all welcome to come experience community that's not based in a common fundamentalist belief but instead is a radically inclusive universal space for community. So there will be sessions and teachings and song and dance and opportunities to connect with each other in person and be seen and heard and leave on a love high.
0: Yeah, Commune is great for like deconstructing Christians and people who want to find community together that are not interested in strict dogma or fundamentalism or anything like that. And then for those of you who want to go deeper, who want to engage in some spiritual practice together that's a little more intense and maybe a little wilder, (laughs) uh, exploring unitive consciousness with each other, the one retreat may be the perfect fit for you. In fact, you could do both. We're actually going to do the commune events in these cities followed immediately by the one retreat. So it would be possible for you to do both or either. We're bringing these events to Nashville and to Chicago and to Atlanta and to the LA area with more events to be added soon. Go to theliturgists.com and you can see some videos about these events, read a little bit more about them, and grab some tickets if you'd like. We'd love to see you. Is Christianity worth saving? That's a question that might sound absurd or even heretical to you. For sure, to many people it would. For lots of people, Christianity equals objective truth. So even asking the question, if we can save it, would be as ridiculous as asking if we can save the Milky Way galaxy you know who do you think you are in even asking such a question they might ask others would answer no christianity's not worth saving i was in that camp for a while and it's an understandable position for many christianity is nothing more than a system of antiquated and destructive beliefs and superstitions and it would be best to just let it fade into the night with other irrelevant religions and philosophies from the past that don't serve us anymore. But there are some of us that don't fit neatly into either of those positions. For some of us, we've experienced enough beauty and love and truth and connection within Christian community and practices to know that it's not all bad. And still being able to see that there are definitely elements of organized religion and Christendom that have been and continue to be extremely destructive forces in the world, individually and collectively. But for many of us, there's a tension there. There's a enough yes and enough no that creates this tension. And that tension is actually at the heart of why the liturgists exist in the first place. Actually, as we are outlining where we're going in the future in this episode, maybe it's helpful to do a quick recap of the past. Perhaps we can begin with a a reading from our original manifesto. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. We had a manifesto. So cue pretentious music, please. Thank you. A reading from the original liturgist manifesto. The great mystics, sages, and theologians of history have always espoused that all of life is sacred. While the power-hungry and money-lovers within religious power systems may find incentive to parse life into clear-cut categories like sacred and secular, we, the liturgists, firmly reject this sort of categorization insofar as it leads to a destructive domestication or hierarchical dissolution of the exquisite oneness and wonder of existence. We, the liturgists, seek to become a community who work together to create good, thoughtful, creative, hopeful, and evocative liturgical work. All right, so what does any of that mean? To get to that, let's go back to 2010. I was burning out. I was a pastor, about to be a dad, a touring musician, but I was just frayed. I was so tired and exhausted, and I really didn't know what I believed anymore. So I googled best spiritual retreats in the world. Now that was a pretty risky Google for me because I'd grown up in a conservative Christian environment that would have considered an inter-religious meditation retreat dangerous and probably demonic. But I was desperate, so I reserved my spot at the retreat, booked myself a ticket, and flew across the Atlantic in order to you know, basically sit in a room and do nothing all day. And at first, that was really hard. The first few days of my retreat were very difficult. So much silence was uncomfortable. I had been practicing a minimal meditation routine in my life by that point, but certainly nothing that had prepared me for complete silence all day and night. But a few days into my retreat, I ended up having this beautiful, mystical experience that I can only describe as union with the divine. For those of you who have had experiences like that, you know that there's something about them that is unspeakable. But perhaps the picture of a depressed, angsty, disembodied Enneagram 5 guy who didn't know if he even believed in God— suddenly dancing, literally dancing across the hilltops in Assisi, those hills that St. Francis used to preach to the animals on. Maybe that picture can suffice to say that the experience was remarkable and meaningful for me and in some ways would set the course for the rest of my life because in those hills I saw that God was not a separate something or someone out there that I needed to believe in or understand that God was simply what is and I was being invited into it. Let's fast forward to 2013 where I meet a guy named Science Mike
2: I'm Science Mike I'm Science, Mike. I'm Science, Mike. I'm Science Mike.
0: Mike had a similar story to me in that he also grew up very conservatively Christian and lost his beliefs and then he had an experience that was a mystical experience as well that he didn't know what to do with so, Mike and I became fast friends and started having these conversations. Conversations about spirituality and Christianity and God and the meaning of existence and all of it. And through that conversation, the idea began to arise about a way of practicing spirituality in the West that could be a little bit more inclusive of weirdos like Mike and I who didn't really know what we believed, but had, had experiences that made spirituality worth pursuing. And not even just spirituality, specifically Christianity. Like, what about Christianity might be worth saving, if you will? Worth reforming? Worth reimagining? And that's where that manifesto came from. And from that, we began to talk to some friends and we actually started making some things.
1: There are questions that wait in the shadows doubts that lurk until we shut the lights off
0: and And try to sleep.
2: Meaningless. Science shows us that human brains are oriented towards responding. You have your breath. The exhale.
1: It will startle you like the first crash of thunder in a
0: summer storm. So basically we started these little EPs of meditations and liturgical material that we hoped people could use who might not belong so comfortably in the center of traditional Christian orthodoxy and it was beautiful and it was a very small niche crowd we we did some events where we put up a scrim and like did the whole thing as shadows it was fun and weird and experimental and frankly a lot of people didn't get it they didn't really know what we were doing so we thought maybe we should try to explain what we're doing more in a format that actually can be a little bit more conversational so we thought maybe we should start a podcast welcome to the liturgist podcast i'm michael gunger i'm science mike
1: and i'm Lisa paino
0: Pete Enns, Rachel Held Evans, Rob Bell, Richard Rohr, Christina Cleveland, Propaganda, William Matthews, Hillary McBride, basically all these badasses started having all these great conversations. And suddenly this podcast, like, took off.
2: It is, I put a lot of weight into being nice
0: What started as like a really niche, small thing with a few friends was listened to by uh, millions of people. What was it like to lose God for you?
2: I'll start crying immediately.
3: As a kid. Who's going to live my life in the future that you adults are building for me now? Please, you have to learn how to work together.
2: <laughs> it was <three> human? <laughs> right? So, but it took a law. Like, like let person. that sink in. Like, it took a law for
0: you to- Man, what a ride those first few years were! It was just so exciting. We are talking about these new ideas, and it was just thrilling. But there was something interesting and odd about this show and the community that was starting to form within and around it. And I think it has a lot to do with that question I asked at the beginning of the show, and the question that was so central to the start of the liturgists. Is Christianity worth saving? The truth is, through the several first years of this program, we haven't had an answer to that question. We were just sort of asking the question and playing with the possibilities ourselves. And because of that open-handedness, a lot of people gathered around this conversation haven't really agreed with each other. It's honestly been a little bit humorous at times how extreme the differences in the community can be. You know, we do a gathering and half the audience really wanted us to do it in a church. The other half really didn't want us to ever step foot in a church. Half of the audience thought we were being too religious. The other half thought we weren't religious enough. Like, really strong opinions both ways. And that's an odd thing to exist within one community. That tension has been an ever-present thing here, even within the hosts and the guests that we've had through the years. Some of us have been church-going Christians. Other of us had zero interest in any uh, organized religion at all. And honestly, that strange dissonance As part of what I've loved about this community, there really is no orthodoxy here. You don't have to believe or not believe anything to be a meaningful part of this community. And we're committed to keeping it that way. But there has been an aspect of this divided nature of our community that has sometimes made it hard to do anything constructive and organized, because any sort of direction in that way would alienate half the audience. You know, deconstruction is easier. It's one thing to grab a hammer and tear a structure down. Everyone can sort of have fun doing that. It's quite another thing to try to build a structure together that we could all live in together. You know, all of a sudden, everybody's got very strong opinions about what that structure should look like. But after six seasons of hammer-wielding deconstruction, we as a community, as an organization, have decided to take a chance and make some plans for some construction, knowing that what we were about to embark on building together isn't going to be for everybody here. And if that's you, we want you to know that we are working on some other ways for you to still be here and involved without having to be, you know, one of the construction workers of the project we're about to pitch to you in this podcast. We have never felt that everyone needs to come to the same conclusion about what to do with Christianity, and we still don't. So I just want to be clear, regardless of how you feel about this podcast or project that you're about to hear about, you are still welcome here, as you are. And we will do our best to accommodate space for those who need a break from even talking about Christianity. I mean, personally, I was there for a while, so I get that completely. But regardless of how you would answer the question Is Christianity salvageable? I hope you'll at least listen to the rest of this podcast with an open mind and heart, because I think what we're about to embark on together is going to be an exceptionally exciting and ridiculous adventure. And I hope you'll at least allow us to stimulate your imagination for the next half hour or so. And I'd love to begin a deeper dive into this question about whether Christianity is worth saving by pointing out that this question doesn't just concern people who would identify as being Christian. The truth of the matter is that Christendom is the water that we're all swimming in. If you live in the West, if you understand English, if you're listening to this podcast, you are swimming in and affected by Christianity every day of your life, whether you like it or not. I mean, this truth struck me even deeper. January 20th, while Biden was being sworn in at the inauguration, I was watching the ceremony on TV with my family. And, you know, the ceremony, if you watch it, or if you've watched any of them ever, there's prayers and there's Bibles and priests and there's all sorts of Christian stuff. So we're watching this and my 10-year-old daughter, Amelie, looks over at me and asks, is this a church or something? I didn't quite know how to answer that because, yeah, I mean, sort of, right? I mean, imagine just for a second, if what happened at that ceremony, rather than a priest coming up with the Bible, if if a yogi came up and started chanting to Shiva while her hand was on the Tibetan book of the dead, would that have been okay in our society? No. In reality, America is a Christian nation. We like to think that there's a separation between church and state, but in America, they seem to go together, hand in hand. So in this conversation about what we should do with Christianity, it's not its not an important conversation just for people who call themselves Christians or who want to talk about theology or whatever. Like, this affects all of us. We're all swimming in Christendom. Every dollar bill says in God we trust on it we pledge allegiance to one nation under god all of our literature and our art you know is filled with biblical allusions the mythic framework for for everything in western civilization it's come out of christendom even if you don't believe yourself in personally in any christian doctrine even if you're an atheist atheism is defined in our context by not believing in god but that What that even means is coming from a Christian framework. What a God is. In the same way that our structures and holidays and language, our monetary and judicial system, all of it is defined by Christianity. It's all the fruit on the tree of Christendom, whether you like it or not, whether you're a Christian or not. So what do we do about that? Do we just throw our hands up and not think about it? Do we... Try to purge it from our midst? Do we try to reform it? Change the meanings of the words? Change the practices? Hillary McBride, William Matthews, and I sat down with me, he, Kim Court, a few months ago to talk about all this. So I was in New Zealand a few years ago, and I was walking. It was an off day, and I was just walking around, and there was this old building. It was a beautiful building walked inside and noticed all over the tiles they had the freaking like swastika symbol I was like what in the hell like all over the marble and all of like this fancy building and then I noticed that there was a plaque on the wall that said if you're curious about all of the swastikas <laughs> it's like uh it this was this building was built before the nazis um, used the swastika, and it had a different meaning. Like, it's actually some sort of positive meaning. And it just made me wonder, like, <laughs> is there at some point that a symbol or a story or a myth or a movement can become defiled to the point of being irredeemable? And if so... Has Christianity reached that point?
4: I think that's a great jumping off point to think about metaphors, to think about institutions, the kind of um, signifying power that both have. I wonder if there's something about who is reading and utilizing that particular symbol. So I know you're referring to that was originally a symbol um, found in Hinduism, And it's supposed to mean happiness or joy or luck or something super positive. So it was usurped. It was co-opted for really, really negative, destructive, violent, evil. Can it mean something beyond the context that um, we normally would like instinctively read in? I don't know. You weren't lying when you were like, "Yeah, I'm gonna just start out with this <laughs> statement. <laughs> so we just bring out the swastika." <laughs> I know
0: it seems extreme. Anytime you use like Nazis, obviously that kind of trope of like if you've used if you bring Nazis into a conversation or an argument, you've lost already. But it's like you when you think about what the Christianity, what Christian dumb has done, it's not actually it's it's not apples and oranges the the crusades the the way of that christendom has partnered with colonialism and different forms of genocide through 2000 years is it's not a light comparison with nazism you might be able to some people might be able to draw a tie between christendom and nazism in some ways and some of the anti semitic and and colonialist expansion like there's a lot that christendom has its hands pretty dirty in world history
4: yeah yeah i mean i 100 percent wholeheartedly agree um i think that the various versions and forms of christianity throughout history um i think not even like coupled or partnered with but I would even say that was the grounding for colonialist expansion and Mm -hmm. the reasoning for slavery and um, imperial projects and so-called American interventions and wars um, in East Asia. I think you can see American, Protestant, Christianity. Those were not just reasons, but the actual framing for why whole civilizations did what they did to other people.
0: Right. Yeah. Manifest destiny. Yeah.
1: So I'm not a church historian or a theologian. As someone who has participated in the creation of what we call the church, just by being a member of this, this so-called body, one of the things I've learned is this um, turning over that happens every several hundred of years. That there is something that seems to happen in church history, where every 500 years or so, the the church um, shifts. There's an iteration of what it means to be the body, and when we're asking the question, "Is the church worth saving?" what I'm asking, what I'm feeling my, in myself is trying to, to parse out if the asking of that question is signaling another one of those turning overs is, is asking the question, Mm -hmm. is the church worth saving something that is often asked right before the church saves itself. (laughs) And if there Mm -hmm. is a signaling in us asking this question that marks The phase that we're in and often it's hard to know if you're in a moment in history when you're in it right we can only see these things retroactively with any degree of clarity but I'm wondering if if that's what's happening right now because of this conversation and what I'm hearing of other people having this conversation all over the place the acknowledgement that there's something that's not working or a new level of awareness that uh that is inviting us to expand or change what church looks like?
2: Well, I think the, um, I think the data supports your conclusion, Dr. (laughs) McBride. The data supports, you know, a declining church that has been in decline for 17 to 18 years in America, particularly the West. I mean, we know in, in Europe, it's, it's, massively decline, and, and that's worth noting.
0: So Mihi, I'm curious as a pastor, why, mm-hmm. you know, why? <laughs> why are you a pastor? What is it that, that you're after?
4: I feel like I'd say like 80% of the time, I wonder what the hell we're doing. <laughs> you no. Know, I think the thing that I go back to the most is that there's something wonderful and beautiful and meaningful about the gathered body of Christ. I believe that the divine, that God, the spirit of Christ still really works these miracles, these weird moments, these beautiful, surprising, sort of radiant moments in people's lives. And that it helps us to see those moments Um Because they are so small and and they're like little glimpses. I think for me, someone who has worn glasses my entire life and who pretended I didn't need glasses for like maybe four years in high school because I didn't want to wear them, I think that there's just something really significant about seeing. Seeing with your eyes, seeing with your heart, seeing with your body. um, And and the church helps me to do that. I think a lot Mm -hmm. about uh, mystery, that... We are constantly surrounded by things that we can't explain or we don't understand. The church makes space for that, and entering into a space where that is present and that it's, it's encouraged to engage the mystery on a regular basis, that that does something to us when we're not in that space, when we're out in the world, I think that forms in us a certain kind of curiosity. And then I always make a through line to compassion as an extension of curiosity in that it's a way of recognizing that um, divine mystery in each person. And I think the person who did that best was Jesus. So Mm. I'm just going to land on Jesus. Mm. What
2: you just described is very compelling, Rather than you know the vision we're often painted in in church, which, which carries a lot of heavy-handed moralisms, and and to be super blunt, like church is just so involved in people's sex lives. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, just so involved, like wanting to to control it, wanting to um, put boxes around it, and and then the the, the nuclear family idea. Um, and then forcing particularly single people into this you know like be like me be like my family we're fathers and mothers um but what you're describing is is way more open and way more truly built around the mystery of god i feel like collectively and 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 there's a lot of beautiful churches out there doing beautiful work so this in no way diminishes them but um when satan takes jesus to the mountaintop and gives him three temptations of course jesus passes all three the last one you know standing on top of the mountaintop and being told if you just bow down and worship me i'll give you the kingdoms of the world and of course jesus refuses that answer um and that temptation i don't think the church has refused that temptation Because I think the need for power, like you're describing, the need um, to control the kingdoms of the world or the the seeking of dominance is one of the temptations that Christ himself had to fast and pray to to sweat out the desire for that type of power. And I think we're in a situation where the the church has, has failed that temptation and has actually sought power and aligned itself with power and has actually aligned itself with the satanic. In that way. Come
1: on, William. You're getting all fired
0: up, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting fired up. I love it. Okay, narrator Michael back now again. Let's just recap for a minute. We were talking about what we should do about this whole Christianity thing. And as we've seen, Christianity has been problematic, to say the least, through history. But aside from the fact that all of us, whether we are Christians or not, are completely immersed in its cultural branches, there are also aspects of Christianity that have been and can be beautiful and powerful ways of engaging with the mystery, like Mihi was talking about. Sometimes these same words and practices that have been used in really harmful ways, have also been used to help us see more clearly, to live and love more fully. I think those are two pretty strong arguments for Christianity being worth trying to salvage or reform in some way. You know, if we're all swimming in the water anyway, we might as well try to make the water as clean as we can. But honestly, for many of us, those two things might not be enough. I mean, personally, I've known that stuff for quite some time. I've known that there's some good stuff in Christianity, and I've known that our culture is very Christian, but it's not until recently that I've personally been becoming more interested in reframing or reworking some of these Christian practices, words, and traditions. For quite some time, it was more helpful for me, and frankly more fun, just to not really think about it much, you know? I had a lot of pain from Christianity and for several years, my approach to Christianity had been kind of, yeah, you know, with, with of course the occasional middle finger tweet to the Christian man, you know, but there have been two other considerations that have presented themselves to me this last year that have changed my heart and mind on this issue. The first came about in working with the liturgists in this community more closely. As many of you know, Mike left the show last year in order to focus on his health and some other endeavors he wanted to pursue. And his absence left a pretty big hole in the community. We had to figure out what to do about that. And, you know, especially in community life, Mike was usually the one dealing with more of the community issues more than I was. And uh, with Mike leaving, I found myself in the seat of needing to facilitate more community stuff. Oh, we started this thing called the Sunday thing, and I was hosting that through the year. It's a weekly Zoom call that we have with the community, and in that call and and getting to know more people within the community, uh, we just I'd start hearing all these stories about people's deconstruction, and of course, I have heard these stories through the years from a lot of you at different gatherings or on social media or whatever, but there was something about meeting with you every week on the Sunday thing, face-to-face like that over Zoom. Uh, But it really made some of your stories hit home for me in a new way. And I've experienced what so many of you have experienced in that leaving Christianity, it wasn't easy for a lot of us. It was, in fact, it was kind of traumatic. It was like a trauma on top of the other trauma that we had already experienced that made us feel the need to leave in the first place. You know, so many of us experienced religious shame and abuse and trauma of one kind or another, and to have to add to that trauma more trauma of needing to leave your entire community, of needing to be severed from your meaning-making stories and language and practices, because, you know, they now carry with them these triggers of these past wounds. Well, that sucks. What so often happens is that we're forced into this decision between staying in some sort of abusive or minimizing or shameful world or going through the trauma of losing your world. And the choice for so many of us ends up being... Either shut up and accept this bullshit or speak up and lose everything and everyone that you love. And then where are you supposed to go? You know, like if you leave the tradition, where are you supposed to go? What communities and traditions and practices are waiting for you on the other side of that trauma? Sure, some of the most intense spiritual seekers may try to explore other paths, to learn Sanskrit, to study Zen, to move to an ashram, or go to a Vipassana retreat or something. But most people don't have the time, energy, or desire to, you know, just learn an entirely new world full of new myths and new language and new practices. It's a lot. So most people just sort of give up on their spiritual development and resign themselves to being a good person, as good as they can be. Or, you know, some others might get into new age stuff or become super woo or whatever. But for the most part, as people grow in consciousness, at some point, they usually just kind of run out of runway with Christianity. They run into a wall where they have to decide between, you know, finding some new runway or just lying there and giving up on any more significant spiritual growth from there. But what if it didn't have to be like that? What if there was a way to pave more runway for people? What if there was a way that there could be some sort of reframing or reformation of Christianity that would be big enough, wide enough, for people to not have to leave the tradition to keep growing? I mean, that would make the idea of reformation actually kind of exciting to me. Okay, so one more time, let me just recap the main arguments here in favor of a sort of reformation or or reframing of Christianity as opposed to just um, meh or uh, trying to start from scratch or whatever. And that is, number one, we are, are already swimming in Christianity, whether we are Christian or not. Number two, Christianity actually has some valuable ideas and practices worth keeping around. Number three, as we just discussed, a lot of trauma on trauma happens when people feel the need to abandon their religion in order to keep growing. And that trauma could possibly be avoided with some meaningful and accessible reformation. And together, I'm pretty compelled by those three arguments. But there's one final one that I'd like to present to you that kind of pushes me over the edge from being a willing participant to actually being pretty passionate about this. I'm, I'm actually really becoming an advocate for this. Uh, And this, this fourth point is a deepening realization that there's this incredible amount of groundwork and foundation that has already been laid by our ancestors, that isn't repeatable. To start from scratch really isn't possible at this point, I don't think. I don't, I don't see how it would be possible to start with an entirely new foundation of our civilization. And to illustrate what I mean in this, I'd like to play you this little four-minute clip of a conversation that Peter Rollins and I had several episodes back. To give you a little context, Peter's talking about what can happen with community, how it can change the world.
3: If you have enough of those communities across the world, you don't have to do anything. That is a doing. That is a radical political intervention. Mm. That is a rupture. That's an apocalyptic moment. So, yeah. But you need, to be, you need a lot of communities. So um, I've got an idea for how to do that. <laughs>
0: all right, let's hear
3: Well, well this, is, this is the core of right, Is that It's very hard to set up new communities, right? But what if there was already a network of communities that met around the world? Hundreds of them, in fact, millions of them, let's say. And let's say they all met once a week, some of them twice, some of them three times a week. And let's say that people went to them all their life, even brought their kids to them and were married there and died there. And then what if those communities had um, an emancipatory message that's, yes, been covered over and, yes, is kind of like being a bit messed up. But what if you could just kind of bring out that emancipatory message uh, in those communities, then you already have the network set up. Mm. So... My work is, is uh, to try to to, <laughs> to find, be Christian. Yeah, is to find <laughs> if there's if there is such a thing as a massive network of communities meeting every week. That's amazing, and, and then re-narrate them in this way. Yeah, wow. <laughs> mm. whether I mean, it's, uh, whether it'll work or not.
0: <sighs> yeah, it's amazing. It's like, what if you could have them having said the words of this emancipatory message. They just need a little, like, lens click to...
3: Yeah. just go. And, and, and you know what? The word reformation is that lens click. Yeah. That's funny. Like, I, I think that basically the lens click is these institutions often, they go, th- and a, a, a reformation's weird because nothing changes, but everything changes. So nothing, like the same language mm-hmm. is used, the same structures, and yet everything is reinterpreted in a slightly different way. Yeah. And so a lot of my work as religion has tended to be... Or in a completely upside down way. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. um, Mark said about Hegel that Hegel was on his head, so he wanted to turn him back on his feet. So (laughs) yeah, that's the the plan. Yeah. Yeah.
0: This tree that we call Christianity, that we live in together, is really old. And yeah, there are thorns on it, some poison oak, some weird looking predatory birds perching on some of the branches. But this is this ancient tree. I mean, it's got a real wide trunk, it's got real deep roots. And the amount of life that's been able to grow within the ecosystem of this tree is quite something. I know a lot of us have been hurt on this tree. I'm one who has as well. But I don't think cutting the tree down entirely is a realistic option for us at this point. Sure, we can work together to get rid of the most thorny branches and and the most poisonous fruits. But the truth is that we live here. This is our society. This is our language. This is our home. And we don't have another. So why not make use of it? That may sound hopeless or something, but it's actually not. Maybe there is a lot of potential here to create something exceptionally beautiful. Imagine if people didn't have to experience more trauma in order to escape religious abuse. Imagine a path in the West that you wouldn't have to learn a whole new language. You don't have to learn Sanskrit. You don't have to learn new myths. But if there could be a lens click that some of the same symbols, some of the same language, some of the same systems that we live in could have a click where it moves from being abusive and dualistic and misogynistic and colonial and imperial and all the stuff that damages. And if with a simple click, all of those tools could actually be used for good. I mean, th- we can see this with normal tools. If you try to use a hammer to eat spaghetti, it doesn't help. It's not, it doesn't work well. If you just click the lens by which you're using the tool you might actually find really useful ways of utilizing that tool. And what if there were some more useful ways of utilizing concepts like God and sin and heaven and salvation? What if we could utilize our current communities and infrastructures to help us be more present to what is, as opposed to just waiting for something else after we die? What if we could beat the swords into plowshares and use what our ancestors have given us for good rather than for evil, a true and profound reformation? That's what we here at the Liturgists are going to be committing ourselves to. We are committed to creating and curating spiritual technologies for people in the West, that can help us be more present to our lives as opposed to escaping from them without having to learn new stories myths or language oh doesn't it sound good <laughs> imagine having free access to spiritual technologies like scriptures creeds sacraments ceremonies meditations and other practices that have been sort of updated for where consciousness is now practices and technologies that can be used by individuals or communities who want to practice spirituality together in a more embodied, less shameful or fearful way. Imagine Christian language being used in practices in a way that actually celebrates the totality of your existence, your sexuality, your humor, your creativity, and all of your uniqueness. Now, certainly we are not the first people to hope for such things in the world. But it does seem that the time is ripe for joining the millions of voices, mystics, and movements before us who have paved the way for a practice spirituality that isn't so patriarchal and based in beliefs, based in the past and in the future, but in this orgasmic, loving bliss of this very moment, being alive in these bodies right now. And so this is what we're committed to moving forward, reforming, synthesizing, creating, curating spiritual technologies for right here and right now. I'm sure you have some questions. You know, what exactly needs to be reformed? And what does any of this even look like practically? Who's involved? How do we avoid the same pitfalls that others have fallen into? You know, pitfalls of power and scapegoating and beliefism. We're going to talk about all of that and more in the next episode of the podcast. But for now, if something about this episode or this idea sparks something in your mind or heart and you feel yes, if you feel some sort of yes inside, you want to be involved with this on some level, we need you. In fact, as we as a team have been wrestling through how to best make this material and these technologies available to people, we've decided to turn the business of the liturgists into a nonprofit because we want this material to be accessible to anybody who wants it. And so we are going to need your help. We're going to have all sorts of opportunities as we move forward into transitioning into a nonprofit that you can get involved in helping us fund the art that is made, we want to make a documentary, we have all sorts of dreams about some of these technologies and how we want to give them to the world. And we're also going to need some of you to help support the staffing of those things. We're going to need volunteers, we're going to need your wisdom, your creativity, your involvement. So again, if you feel some sort of spark here, you're curious, you want more, you want to be involved, go to liturgistscom Let us know who you are, sign up to be involved, to be kept in the loop on all of this join the revolution baby (laughs) (laughs) what an adventure lies ahead i can't wait to see where it goes all the love to all of you